This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Things are fine. So I'm joined now by Zoe Coombsma, who's performing as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Uh, a couple of years ago, Zoe won the Barry Award with a show called Trigger Warning. Now she's got a new show, Bossy Bottom, in which she performs as herself for the first time, as opposed to her misogynist male alter ego, Dave. Zoe, does it feel weird being yourself on stage or is it kind of liberating? It does feel weird. I mean, it's not the first time I've performed as myself. It's just the first time in, in about a, 10 years. In a while. In about... About six years. Yeah, so um, I did stand up as myself before this and then Dave was sort of born out of my frustrations with the sort of uh, gender imbalances in the industry. And then um, (laughs) now that I've come back, now I've been doing Dave for so long and I've come back on stage. Well, you've seen the show. I've picked up all the mannerisms of the guy that I've been parodying. So I've picked up all these kind of hacky stand-up things which now I just am doing without a costume on so it's sort of there's a number of layers of irony that are sort of still there but not apparent it's strange. So does this mean you have to start to untrain your Davisms or? Yeah totally I mean some I have and some I haven't gotten rid of like I mean the sexism obviously like it would be quite funny if I just got up and people were like oh my god it turns out Zoe Coombsma is just a total misogynist um no obviously not but uh I um but the there's certain mannerisms and there's like a certain swagger to my stand-up now which was never really there before but which I quite like as well because I think the thing that people forget is stand-up is a persona as well it's as much a character as a character is it's just um it is just a clo- it's just closer to your actual person so it's believable that it's you but stand up is a, it's a performance yeah it's a, it's interesting seeing the subtle differences and sometimes not so subtle differences that performers adopt when they have a persona which is often just the slightly larger than life version but i've seen people who are so incredibly shy off stage and on stage they become these kind of monstrous kind of uh show-offs and I've seen that in not just in stand-up but in live music and stuff as well absolutely it's a totally different thing it's a you're a different person uh you you are like at once totally yourself and then and also uh it's sort of expressed in a different way and it's also about a relationship with an audience which is sort of what I'm really interested in doing this show it's really fun kind of uh, just connecting with the audience as myself again and just being able to speak from my own perspective. So that's really fun. It's really nice. It's nice not to have that kind of strange uh, filter between me and them, the screen that is Dave. And also nice not having to kind of peel off the neck beard at the end of each show. It's so nice. I understand why people just do st- – like it's so – it's so easy. Just you just walk on the clothes I'm wearing now. I'll just walk on stage in them. I don't have to put a costume on. I don't have to bind my breasts. I don't have to put a banana down my pants. It's great. <laughs> I mean, I could if I wanted to. Yeah. Well, I don't have to. So, talk to us about the impact that the winning the Barry had on you and your career. But well, in particularly, what I'm interested, I guess, is how do you follow up something that's been so well received? Because well, it must be quite nerve wracking. It, it is nerve wracking. I mean, I felt like I took a year off last year. I didn't do a new solo show. I did I did other things. I did two theatre shows. Um, so that sort of felt enough. But um, I, 
it it does feel sort of strange to come back and be doing st- do, doing a, a follow up. It feels like I'm sort of sticking my head above the parapet, and so it did feel like a kind of scary, risky thing to do a show just as myself because I could have quite easily done another Dave show, uh, but this felt scarier. So that's why I decided to do it. I kind of have a policy in general. It's like if something feels scary, then and I've thought of it. I'm like, oh well, I've got to do that now. So. Given that you do stand up, and as you've just mentioned, you also do theatre, how do you decide what goes with which art form? When you're thinking creatively and dreaming up ideas, how do you know what is going to go where? Um, I think it's quite an organic process, really. Like, I I really like working in different mediums because they fulfil different um, parts of my kind of like creative mind. I, I really like working with other people. I think collaboration is. Uh, is fantastic and and we should have more of it i mean i don't there's a lot about the sort of individualist um kind of auteur approach to the idea of like comedy that i feels a bit yuck and egoy to me but uh that uh, but also my ego loves it because i just get to do whatever i want and i'm a control freak um but in choosing things i think it's just sort of organic you kind of for me, there's like always like a kernel of an idea or a nugget of something, and then things stick to it that have a truth that's related. You know that they they sort of unfold in their way, and that's why sometimes when you go when I think of something, like oh oh imagine if I did this on stage, I'm like oh well now I have to do that. That makes sense, and it makes sense with an audience, and it sort of grows. But yeah, I mean I don't have like. Sometimes they're the same sorts of things. Sometimes they cross over. It's sort of, you know, like you're kind of working out the same kind of thing. So sometimes two shows might be sort of about the same thing completely and you might be doing the same things in them just in different ways. So it's about unpacking ideas and just kind of... I mean, I'm thinking you mentioned that you did uh, two shows last year. So that was, what, a post-show, which is the kind of collective you're involved with from Sydney. And then you also did uh, Wild Boar with Ursula Martinez and Adrian Truscott. Yes, that's right. And they were two... Um, I mean, those shows were really, really different, but that, uh, so Ik Nibidiba, which is uh, the name of the post show. And which is coming to the Malthouse later this year? It is coming to the Malthouse later this year. So that show was like uh, quite a personal one for us. It's uh, all real recorded conversations. So that was like a really specific type of, it's, the whole script is from real recorded conversations over the last 13 years. So and what, like conversations that we've had in the time that we've known each other and been working together, and then um, Wild Boar, of course, was a piss take of critics <laughs> or of bad reviews. Really, I mean, I love critics. My partner is a critic, but um, she's a film critic. Thank God, she's not reviewing me. That, that would be awkward. If she reviewed me, yeah, yeah. Oh, it would be terrible. I mean, she does also uh, in person. But well, that's what partners are for, to, yeah. go, to pull you up and, and on, on going, you do realise you've worn the same T-shirt three days in a row or, or whatever, or <laughs> totally. why haven't you done the dishes again or whatever. That's a form of criticism as well. But no, um, Wild Boar, I, I know a couple of critics who were almost, not hurt, but kind of almost feeling left out that, that uh, their that they criticism didn't make wasn't, it in, yeah. didn't make it into Wild Boar. But yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a, it was a fun, that was a really fun show. This is the first show that I've done though since doing Wild 
bubble where I'm actually being reviewed for real. <laughs> so that feels pretty weird, but, you know. You read your reviews? Because I know some people who do and some people who don't, and a lot of the people who say they don't, I think, do anyway, but they... I know some people go, right, I'm not going to read anything during the run itself yeah. because that will could throw me off completely. I do that. That's my, my policy. And it's I, um, I, I find that reviews tend to, well, good ones tend to make their way to you. Um, people tend not to bring up bad reviews as much. But um, I don't read my reviews during the, during the run of a show particularly because it, I find that even if it's a good review, it'll sort of mess you up. Like you, you kind of start overthinking it. And my job is really to be pleasing at the audience in the room at the time. So if I'm thinking about what someone on a different night thought about, it's. It, I mean, it would be like thinking about a heckle that you got three nights ago. Like it's not. It's a different show every night. You, know, you have to start again and start afresh and be present. So anything that takes you out of that, I think, is a bit. You know, it's a bit stupid. And it's also again, it's just about ego. It's just about going like, oh, what do people think of me? It's like no. Nah, the job is actually to do the job to be good at what you're doing and thinking about what other people think of what you're doing is not actually. That's not that. That's just a distraction, really. I can understand that. Now, in terms of your thinking, okay, it's time to do a, uh, a new solo stand-up show as myself. What kind of ideas did you want to kind of throw into the mix and pick and unpack? How do you uh, approach creating and making a new show like Bossy Bottom? Um, I love that people keep having to say Bossy Bottom. <laughs> it was really pleasing to me. Um, well, I uh, I started off. I just wanted to, I knew I had to do a new show and I had to do a show as Dave. So I sort of started off by just doing stand-up and gigging, gigging a bit um, and trying to work out what that was. So that was like the challenge was just to do a stand-up show as myself. And then I wanted to do a show, the, cha- the other challenge was to do a show that wasn't about anything. Of course, it ends up sort of being about something, everything is. But I just wanted to do a show that was just dumb jokes just stupid jokes so anything i found funny is in there so it's just silly stuff there's no like it doesn't really build <laughs> to anything i mean it does but it doesn't i just wanted to kind of see what that that it, in many ways because i make very political work often um it felt like it it felt actually felt quite political to do something that was just purely about joy and about jokes and about stupidity as opposed to going like, oh, I'm a woman, I'm a queer woman making comedy, I have to talk about these things, my work has to be politicised all the time because that can actually be really exhausting. So, yeah, that's what this show is. It's just a big old laugh. Well, I certainly had a, a big old laugh when I saw it the other night at the, uh, at the uh, town hall. Uh, if you've just tuned in, I'm chatting with Zoe Coombs-Marr about her Melbourne international comedy show, Bossy Bottom, which is on at Melbourne Town Hall through until the 22nd of April, 7pm uh, Tuesdays to Saturdays, 6pm Sundays. I'll give out a few more details later. Um, one of the the themes that I've seen emerge at this year's comedy festival is uh, comedians talking about Me Too uh, mm-hmm. and the impact of that. I'm also seeing comedians talking about class issues, which has been really interesting, both Australian and Scottish comedians and a, a couple of others kind of bringing up class issues and so on as well. Are you seeing many of the other shows in the festival? Are you seeing any, any other themes emerge? Because comedians' mental health is one of the other themes that is kind of... Uh, being discussed more at the moment as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I haven't had a chance to see a lot of stuff. I saw uh, Double Denim the other night, which is great, fun, 
that's just a big old laugh, that one. And I also saw Steph Tisdell, who's a young Indigenous comic. Uh, she's doing a show at the Malt House. I think she's only got a few more nights left. She's fantastic. And she actually talks a lot about class. She talks about race, obviously, but she does. She talks a fair bit about class. And I think it's a really interesting discussion that's happening at the moment about class because it's, especially in Australia, I think we sort of pretend that class doesn't it exist, exists, but then, it absolutely does. Yeah, because then we turn around and someone will make a, a joke about bogans or something mm. like that. And if that's not kind of... An, uh, talking about class without acknowledging class structure. I don't know what is. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's it's really like um, it's a very easy target. You see a lot of, you know, there's a lot of kind of classist jokes and to sort of work out that, to get to the point of going like, oh, that's a thing that we need to sort of acknowledge and talk about is, is really good, is really, and it's something that can be reclaimed and stuff. And Me Too, obviously, is like a really, um, it's not just a, it's not just a topic for jokes. I mean, I've noticed that there's a ton of bloke, like ma- male comics, who just, some of whom like essentially Dave is based off with like hashtag me too punchlines, which is kind of weird. I mean, it's good that people are talking about it, but it's also like uh, I'm interested not just in the way that it is creating content for shows, but also the way that we can change the relationship between the audience and the and the performer and the, the kind of structures around the experience of comedy because that's a really kind of macho male type of medium and it, there's there's a lot of kind of like weird, insidious, slippery things that happen in that space that uh, I think are really connected to that sort of stuff. It's interesting the relationship between comedian and audience can become abusive. Uh, totally. I, and there are some comedians who I've kind of I, I'm I'm not going to name names or anything, but there are a, a couple of comedians who over time I've just gone, you really don't like your audience. Why are you kind of dragging them up on stage and hum and actually cruelly humiliating them? I'm just kind of like no no kind of that, that's not for me. It's a, there's a weird codependency sometimes between comedians and audiences. Yeah, I think there's... I mean, I, as I talk about in my show, I love the audience. I am in love with the audience. And, and I really think there's sort of room, and this will be a, quite a slow burn of a change, of the way to change that interaction between an audience and their... Um, and, and the and the comedian and how can a comedian actually act in a way that is ethical and is based on consent within a room? Because uh, I was talking to Stuart Dalman, who's doing a show as well this year. Is he um, one of the, the Mooseheads? He shows? is one of the Mooseheads. He's doing a show about his own funeral. But he said this great thing, which was and which I was talking to another mate, um, Nikki Britton, who's also fantastic. I'm just plugging people's shows, uh, but uh, about the idea that comedy is essentially like a live exercise in empathy which is what it is and, and that can kind of go either way you can it can become like an abusive gaslighty type of situation and you see this kind of culture of um comics sort of almost acting out an abusive relationship with the audience and sort of normalizing that but then you can also go the other way and create quite a beautiful empathetic um space where the audience is sort of being taught to respond to other humans and each other and the performer on stage in a different way and that's i think that's really interesting obviously i'm talking about it yeah it's uh, comedy is an art form fascinates me just because uh, i've seen so many people die on stage because they think they're funny their mates have said oh you're really funny you should go to an open mic night and they just die and so the 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 fact that it really is an art form it requires so much skill and intelligence and control and structure and and well written jokes mm. uh, 
and and it also requires an understanding of other people as well. I think that's like one of the biggest things that comedians learn over time is um, what the, what their relationship to their audience is and what their responsibility is and and who they are. And uh, I think a lot of comics are really scared of the audience or they or they hate them or whatever. And it's like, well, it's, you've got this amazing opportunity of this room full of people. I think of the audience as one person, but uh, <laughs> that's just me. So. talk visual art now. I'm joined in the studio by artist Stig Person, who has an exhibition, Stig Person Polyphonic, uh, on at the Ian Potter Museum of Art, uh, on now until the 1st of July. Stig, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. So this is a, a bit of a significant exhibition for you, because this is kind of like a career kind of collection of work spanning over, what, 30 years, including very, very recent works. It's um, it's 30 plus. We probably don't like to go into the exact number. Um, no, the earliest painting is from 1983 and um, uh, right up until a work done a couple of months ago. So it's um, greatest hits. Yeah. For obviously for art aficionados and the general public, having the opportunity to see a body of work and to see the evolution of an artist's career is significant and valuable. Is it also valuable for you in terms of being able to look and think about your own work in a in a diff, from a different perspective than you normally would? Um it was unbelievably confronting. Uh we've been working on on this for a, a couple of years now, but we only started really dragging the paintings out uh, at the start, at the end of last year. And um, you, you, you confront it with... I mean, you know you've done them. I look at... But I haven't seen some of these things for sort of 25 years. And so there were all sorts of surprises in there. Um, uh, you'd come across one, you'd think, oh... I have no idea what I was thinking when I did that, none whatsoever. And others that have, um, I knew exactly the day I painted it, where I was, what was going on in the world. Uh, it was a very strange experience in that way. There are some black sheep um, uh, and there are some things you'd rather not know about and they're not in the exhibition. Uh, we've managed to edit those ones out. Um but uh, yeah, I've, I've I found it quite um, quite confronting, really. Now, talk to us about uh, the exhibition itself, Polyphonic, which uh, obviously, as we said, it's a, a collection of work going back many many years. But the word polyphonic itself would uh, means a kind of a uh, a collection of voices or kind of many notes together. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, yeah. And was that what you were trying to to? focus on and reflect on the kind of different voices that you have uh, articulated visually over the years? Yeah, look, in, in, one of the, in, in one respect, one of the hardest things to do was actually come up with the title for the show. Um, we, uh, and that was, um, uh, that was difficult. Well, I worked through several sort of variants on, 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 um, on how to get across what we were talking about. And then just in a discussion with someone one day, we sort of came up with the... She came up with the term polyphonic and I thought, actually, it's polysemic if you want to be technical. Um, What's the difference? Uh, one is to do with sort of like signs, 
polysemic is it's an academic term that sort of people use when they sort of talk about the multiple meanings in a sign. But it's so dry. Um, polyphonic has got the sort of sense of poetry to it. So that's why it, you know, essentially means the same thing. But it is about multiple voices um, existing at the same moment. So the the works that people will see, uh, if people want to jump online uh, to www.art-museum.unimelb.edu.au, which is the Ian Potter Museum of Art website, there's a couple of images on the website which are painted almost a, about a, just over a decade apart. One black background and these kind of like curving arabesques yes. and kind of reminiscent of, of a sea star perhaps or yep. kind of uh, and a real sense of um, kind of controlled fluid movement. There's another work from, uh, what, 11 years later which is almost graffiti-like in its kind of uh, bursts of, of uh, imagery and colour and, and layering effects as well. Yeah. So talk to us about your approach to painting and how that approach has changed over the years. I think one of the things that, um, uh, uh, more importantly probably the things that reoccur, um, I'm someone that tries to allow um, uh, the world to enter in, uh, into, the, into the work uh, in, in, in many, many manifest ways. Um, but uh, there have been some consistencies over the time and, and one of them is a sort of tendency for the sort of, you know, for it to be a sort of a, a solid colour background um, uh, and another one is a sort of tendency to sort of look at uh, the ornamental and the decorative uh, and to try and use that uh, and let that function as a, a way of um, uh, engaging a dialogue with um, with the audience. So the first painting you're talking about is actually quite sort of restrictive in, although it's incredibly ornate, it's actually sort of just made up of one, one continual movement, um, you know, hand, wrist, elbow, arm, uh, just you know, you just swirl your arm around, and that's the mark that comes out. Um, and it's a very simple drawing movement. Um, but what happens is, if what what happens with that painting is, when you do it like hundreds of times, <laughs> you start to sort of develop this sort of thing. So there's very simple sort of structural thing to do with the painting, sort of having certain points where these these marks come out from, and that that's the end of it. It takes, I mean, there's about literally two minutes of creativity in that and then 120 hours worth of work to <laughs> get the whole thing done. Um, the other paintings are sort of uh, the ones you, I think you're talking about referring to as ones that have sort of some sort of gold graffiti kind of, yeah. Um, this is something that I've been working on for the last couple of years where I've, I've taken um, uh, tagging and uh, neutralised it by putting it all through the same filter, which is that they're all painted gold uh, on a white background and that comes up with some sort of Rococo-esque feeling to it. So it's a contemporised version of Rococo. I really like the, the notion of uh, guilt graffiti, taking something that is seen as... Um, uh, destructive or uh, disfiguring and, and lacking value and giving it value by painting it in gold and placing it in a gallery. It's, a, it's an interesting kind of contradic visual contradiction perhaps. Yeah, um, and my own relationship with tagging is sort of quite a vexatious one because, I'm, I, 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 you know, as a, as a sort of um, 
model sort of middle-class citizen. I don't like it. Um, uh, but there is something quite... Uh, uh, and, and actually, I see it really, if you want to get a bit sort of um, into it a, a bit, you know, I see it as actually sort of really not being about... Um, disenfranchised youth as much about people reenacting a sort of neoliberal ideology of um, presenting self as being more important than the collective. I don't see tagging as any different from the Coca-Cola company, really. They're both after a bit of real estate. They're both after uh, product placement. Um, just one sort of flogging, you know, soft drinks and the other's flogging, you know, the, the image of, a, of the individual. What else inspires you in terms of your painting? Because I'm, I, I'm led to understand that you've kind of drawn inspiration and, and uh, everything from a tree outside a window, a coil of spring, to food. And uh, there's a, an image of your work on the Anna Schwartz Gallery website, for example, which is essentially, uh, again, that kind of uh, Rococo gold graffiti, but then overlaid with references to food and pricing and uh, as, as if uh, daily special blackboards at a cafe. Yeah, uh, I have this idea that Food is the preeminent um, area of distinction now amongst the middle class. Once upon a time, people would have opinions about art or um, classical music or things like that. You know, that's I think that's gone. But what people in our society need to have an opinion about is food, because if you don't, there's something profoundly wrong with you. Um, so that um, I mean, just think about how the conversations you have during the day, Richard, when you know. How was your coffee? Oh, it was a little bitter. Or that guy's not making it as well as she is or something like that. It just starts in the morning and it goes all the way through the day. Now, you've mentioned class. You've mentioned neoliberalism. How deeply do your politics and your worldview inform your art? Are the two deeply intertwined or can they be separated? Um, They can be separated. Uh, uh, I'm actually quite, I mean, you know, like a lot of artists, I'm slightly on the left of things. Um, uh, uh, But like a lot of artists, I am sort of, you know, culturally middle class. Um, And, uh, you know, cook gnocchi and, uh, (laughs) you know, go on holidays and, and... beach places and, you know, like, like, you know, like the, the great middle class. So I have this sort of um, strange relationship with, with my middle class nature where um, I'm sort of uh, surrounded by it. And a couple of years ago, we, we rented a place in, in Brighton to be close to my mother-in-law who has had Alzheimer's. And, um, and I'd come from St Kilda and it was just like this complete culture shock. Um, and... It's, I, I think that sort of really sort of drove the class thing for this last series of paintings where I suddenly became aware of this sort of completely... Um, uh, and the painting you referred to are all taken from shops in um, Church Street and Bay Street, um, which um, are pitching to uh, a particular um, socioeconomic demographic and it just happens to be the high one. And it just struck me as being profoundly weird. Now, the, the most recent paintings that you've that are in the exhibition, you're what uh, currently uh, doing a PhD at the VCA. Finished that. 
Congratulations. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Press the button, it goes off, and uh, it's currently with the examiners. So hopefully they'll come back and sort of fix that or stuff. But the PhD was all sort of located around this notion of class and um, and class in Australian painting. I'm actually glad to finish it because at a certain point there in the studio. I got to the point last year where everything was going through the PhD filter and I didn't have, I didn't feel as if I had the luxury to sort of just go out and start doing something else, finding new avenues. So I'm really happy that that's finished and I can start thinking about trying something else. Have you had the chance to try something else yet? Um, no, I'm kind of been busy with this show at the Potter and with finishing up the PhD, but I've got, and like a lot of these things, Richard, I, they always start out with completely half-assed ideas. Um, and whether it, something happens or not, I don't know, but I've got this idea somewhere along the line about doing tourist paintings. I don't know what they are. I don't know what they look like. I don't know what it means. And it might disappear next week as an idea and something else might take its part. But at the moment, that's percolating in the back of the head. I'm very, very happy to uh, have my next guest in the studio. Fez Fanana has been on the show a couple of times. He's the creative director of Briefs Factory, who've been uh, creating acclaimed boylesque cabaret and touring the world to uh, delight and shock of audiences everywhere. <laughs> and he's back for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. How are you going, Fez? I'm awesome. Thank you for having me back. It's great to see you, Richard. Uh, it's always a pleasure to catch up. So what have Briefs been doing since uh, over the last year or so? Oh, uh, We've... Uh... Uh, we've been on tour. We've been over. Uh, we've we've made a new show. Uh, we're, we're back to uh, Melbourne uh, for the third time with the second coming. But uh, for the last thirteen months, we've been on the road with uh, our new production called Close Encounters. Uh, yeah, we made it last year in Brisbane. We followed that formula. We're, you know, uh, we're kind of out, we've got two homes, uh, Melbourne and, and Brisbane, and and. Uh, yeah, so we made the work in Brisbane last year and we've just been on the road. We kind of went to Adelaide Cabaret Festival, opened um, World Pride in Madrid, had a residency in London at Southbank for three months. Uh, we did Auckland, Sydney Festival, Perth Fringe and and then we kind of just kind of transported back, it to, uh, brought the whole old posse back together uh, with the second coming, uh, coming back to Melbourne Comedy Festival. I'm exhausted just hearing that. <laughs> I had a, a slight heart palpitation as well, just saying that out, so out world, loud. So World Pride in Brazil? Uh, in Madrid. In Madrid? Yeah. Yeah, that must have been pretty special. It was incredible. Uh, we were in, I think, one of the oldest theatres we've performed in. It was it was like the Muppet Theatre. It was, it was ornate. It was beautiful archways and and yeah it was it was gaudy and glamorous and 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 and, and it kind of fit the show perfectly really i was thinking gaudy glamorous arch <laughs> rather than archways but yeah. <laughs> so not only are you here in melbourne with the second coming which right. some audience <clears throat> members uh some people listening may have already seen yep. but if they have it's the great opportunity to go see it again and take new friends so they can experience yes, it share the love and the trauma <laughs> <laughs> and for people who haven't seen uh the second coming before. Um, as I said, boylesque, but circus, comedy, yeah. cabaret. It's kind of mixed up into this delicious transgressive cocktail. That's right. That's right. It's a, it's a bit of a concoction. Uh, this, it, you know, it's it's in its plainest, most simplest form to, to describe the, the, the show. It's it's circus, it's drag, it's burlesque, it's comedy, and it's uh, theatre. Uh, and it's kind of wrapped up in a bit of a cocktail of, of glitter bombing of 
of uh, seven seven idiots on stage and and just uh, and I, just being part of this festival, I kind of had this realization yesterday that you know in this current climate in this current terrain of craziness where humans are kind of you know questioning each other and uh, and I think you know there's a sense of uh, loss of confidence in our leaders. I feel like this festival, this comedy festival, feels really has never felt so important to me. I think laughter is such an important potion at the moment. And I feel like I think that aside from the good exercise that you get out of laughter, I think it's really I think it's a really important potion for everyone to get a dose of at the moment. And to do it communally as well. That's yeah. the other thing. Kind of complete yeah. strangers coming together and that's sharing right. a laugh. Yeah, yeah. In, in that in the beautiful famous Spiegel tent. Uh, so and I just had this moment looking around the room going, here are a bunch of strangers, uh, I'm a giant bearded drag queen and everyone's having a good laugh. And it felt like the right, I felt like I was doing the right thing. I felt, felt like I was in the right place at the right time and everyone had this cheeky kind of grin on their face and I was like, I, I feel like we're going to be okay. <laughs> now, for anyone who's seen Briefs The Second Coming, they may be slightly surprised to know that Briefs have also got a kids' show <laughs> in the festival called Bratz Kids Carnival, in which I'm <coughs> guessing some of the elements of the the briefs style have been toned down toned down a touch uh you know it, of course it's language and uh, and language and content appropriate this being being a, a boylesque uh heavy company we obviously keep our clothes on it's still very fleshy and circus uh, i think it's it's about trying not to dumb it down too much for the kids i think the reason why we made this show was we felt like uh felt like it, it was our responsibility to make sure that kids were part of the revival of cabaret. I thought it was important for kids to understand what their parents were going, what babysitters were coming in to, to look after them for. Their parents went away for a cheeky night and a bottle of wine to come and watch cabaret. And I, I just think that, again, there's there's something to say for training kids and for allowing kids to have a, have a taster from that buffet of, of variety. Uh, and so we've made this the Brat Kids Carnival, uh, and uh, it is, it is, it is. There's a whole lot of campery in it that is that is edible for parents and edible for children. And uh, and I think I, I had this lovely conversation. We did our first show um, last Sunday, so it's every Sunday at four o'clock in the Spiegel, famous Spiegel Tent at the Art Centre. And every and this this mother came up to me, slightly disappointed. She said, "I I've been coming to the show the last three times we've been here in Melbourne, and I excitedly talked." explain to my kids what drag was on the drive here to here and then she's like I'm taking you to a drag show this is going to be your first drag experience and she's like but you're not in drag I'm like oh that's a really lovely notion so I'm like I think I'm, I'm going to camp it up a little bit more I'm going to slowly do it. I might put on one eyelash <laughs> <laughs> that could be a bit clockwork orange <laughs> <laughs> yeah but we we kind of and even with the drag we kind of as opposed to kind of presenting uh, we, we kind of still wanted to have that element so we've made this giant puppet uh, Dallas Delaforce uh, our, you know the queen of avant-garde drag she, we were trying to figure out how we introduce drag into this realm without being too confronting for parents and children and I, and I and you know when when we're in this world we're so paranoid about it I feel like we, it's really touchy about it but so we made this this uh, this beautiful big pink puppet that's a, this big drag lip syncing opera singer puppet and that that's that was the drag element and after that after we had that chat she was like that was actually perfect that was a really nice way to introduce drag and and circus and and yeah so I, the, the the kids show it's this the family show is we wanted to make something that wasn't patronizing i've been part of lots of children's productions where i feel really lame 
And I made promise myself that I wasn't going to feel lame in front of kids anymore because they can smell it and they will take you down. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Kids are smart. They know when they're being patronised. Yes, so, yeah, yes. Yeah. And, and so I, I really I, I adore our, this kids show because it's really nuts and bolts. It's really raw and it's about just... Aside from presenting circus and physicality, it's also making it sustainable. So, you know, when a hoop, ca- hoop act comes on, I show everybody how to make a hula hoop, how to measure it. When mum or dad goes to the hardware, make sure you get them to get some PVC piping and get some electric tape that is your favourite colour so you can make it. And, and, and then I encourage parents to hula hoop with their children. And, and so it's a really nice kind of way of, uh, aside from coming to a show, it's kind of activating physicality again and motor skills and, and parents being being able to physically interact with their kids. And it's also part of a trend that I've been seeing a lot in comedy, cabaret, uh, um, circus and so forth of artists going, right, well, why are we just doing one show a night? We've got the whole day free. What do we do? <laughs> kind of, so it then also means that, yeah, you're kind of uh, two shows in one day, kids show in the, in the early afternoon yep. or the morning, adult show at night increases the sustainability of the performance exactly. for the performers in terms of going, well, we can actually make a living out of this. Yeah, and there's a really big demand for, for family-friendly productions. I feel like there's... It, there's been know, a real growth of it. it yeah, feels. yeah. Yeah, a real and, demand. And, and, you know, we... we uh, something that I'm not used to is the trend of, of comedy festival. You know, uh, we used to... so. I think there's a there's a massive thing for people being able to to walk up to a site like the famous Beagleton and and not have purchased tickets and just turn up and see what's happening. So we were a little bit nervous at the numbers that we had for the kids show, and then we were like it, the room was packed with crazy kids who are who are up for a, up for a good cabaret. Melbournians don't seem to like booking. No, I, and, and I and now I'm comfortable with it. I was the, the, the tickets pre ticket sales was making me ill, <laughs> but uh, now I'm just going to let it go and let it ride. And, and the fest people know what they're doing. People know this festival. It's been around for a long time, and they they know how to they know how to make it work, and they know what they like. So if they're not coming, then maybe we're doing something wrong. <laughs> I'm chatting with Fez Fanana, who's the creative director of Briefs Factory, who are here in Melbourne with three shows, Briefs, The Second Coming, on at the famous Spiegel Tent at Art Centre Melbourne until the 22nd of April, 7pm uh, uh, each night and 6pm on Sundays. That's right. Mondays off? Or? Mondays off. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we've just been talking about uh, Briefs show Bratz Kids Carnival, and you can see that on the 8th, the 15th and the 22nd of April at 4pm. That's right. Tickets are just 16 to 20 bucks. Uh, and there's a third show, which is yes. kind of harkening back to the, the earliest origins of Briefs as a troupe, which is a, a kind of experimental performance factory. Yeah, yeah. This, uh, this whole kind of uh, beast that is Briefs Factory kind of... Uh, we're actually celebrating our 10th year. So uh, uh, ten years ago, uh, in the the back of a bookshop in in Brisbane's industrial area of West End, we kind of put together a club night, and it was called Briefs, playing on on the notion that we couldn't really afford costumes, so we were just all going to wear underwear, um, and and it was about playing on the word brief. So we just everyone the brief was that everyone just had to have a short short act that they could present. It had to be new. There were no rules. We charged people five bucks to get in. We sold a really cheap, nasty punch. It was a bit of a, a speakeasy and a performance night, uh, experimental night. And it was a night to just test drive work. Uh, and that kind of evolved into into the the production briefs and and then in turn now with three productions in and and we've got you know we've also got this like you say we've got the kids show we've got hot brown honey we've got um briefs the second coming close encounters so uh, but 
It's really important. I think we've been more and more often uh, presenting club briefs with most of our seasons now. It's kind of a really awesome way for us to engage with a, a new city. It's a great way to kind of engage with artists, local artists, wherever we go. And it's also really important for us to keep fresh, keep making new work, keep trialling it and figuring out. Um, and, yeah, it's nothing like test driving work on the road. And it's, it feels... And it feels just really nice and it feels really fun to get gritty and and to not be so concerned about production values and just get our hands dirty and, and just really, really um, test drive some things that, are, that I think people, that, that, you know, some people will will um, potentially see in our next, next productions or might be the birth of a new show or might just never come back again. <laughs> <laughs> so Club Briefs is really kind of like it, it's, a, it's an artistic incubator that you're taking on the road. Yep. Are you working with some uh, local artists uh, this year? We're working with a whole heap of artists from throughout the festival. We're working with some... We've, we've um, fallen in love with some local uh, performers and so we're cultivating some, some, th- some of the new Briefs boys. Uh, so there's... Uh, some recent grads from from Nika that we've been taking along with us and, and doing some work with and um, yeah Dylan Rodriguez and, and Luke Hubbard they're they're two boys that that are really exciting performers so if you want to come and check out some of Melbourne's finest circus performers come to Club Briefs and you'll see you'll see some of the, some of your, your most incredible skills and and they're good idiots and and, and, and so uh, so yeah we're engaging with some some performers from the festival. As well as local artists. So Club Briefs is a, the late night show at the Spiegel, the famous Spiegel Tented Arts Centre Melbourne. It's at 11.30pm on uh, tomorrow, Friday the 6th, and then on, again on the 13th and the 20th of April. And tickets are just 25 bucks. Details about all the Briefs shows, <laughs> Club Briefs, Bratz Kids Carnival and Briefs at the Second Coming, go to comedyfestival.com.au or uh, artscentremelbourne.com.au or you can just rock up and buy tickets at the door of the famous Spiegel tent on the forecourt of Arts Centre Melbourne. Fez, thank you so much for coming in. Great to see you again. Thank you so much for having us. See you around the festival. Cheers. Oh, but before you go, yes. do you want to plug something? Yes. There's, uh, talking about kids' shows, uh, there's another great great kids' show, High Skill, Clever Boys, three, um, three Melbourne boys, oh, actually one from Broome. Um, are We There Yet? It's just a, a, a great, whimsical, cute pirate circus show. So, uh, yeah. Go and see that. It's in the famous Beagle tent. As well. So uh, uh, it's school holidays. There are kids' shows on at the festival. Go and see them. Awesome. Thanks, heaps. Cheers. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.